We're going to be learning um, Parashat Kitisa. Been, we've been on the previous parasha every week. And Parashat Kitisa is a little bit of a break from the uh, technicality of the previous two parashiot because we were dealing mainly uh, with the uh, Mishkan and with the Big Day Kehuna, with the uh, clothing of the Kohanim. And in this week's parasha, even though it does continue with that theme to some extent, it does discuss uh, some of the construction of the Mishkan, and it will return to it in this coming week's parasha. The, um, the uh, emphasis or the centerpiece of the, of the parasha, I would say, is really on Cheta Egil, the sin of the golden calf, and the aftermath of the sin of the golden calf. And in order to really... Uh, uh, you know, in order to really um, understand what happened in the uh, sin of the golden calf, we have to look at it a little more closely. I think we've discussed it in the past uh, from various angles, but it's uh, there's a reason why the sin of the golden calf occupies such a significant place in uh, in our religious consciousness. You could say there are many different things, uh, many different practices that are supposed to highlight or atone for or somehow correct the chet egel, the sin of the golden calf. And, and to the point that uh, there is a statement of the chazal, the rabbis say that there's no tragedy that befalls the Jewish people or punishment that befalls the Jewish people that doesn't contain in it a little bit of the payback uh, of the consequence of the chet egel. So in other words, what it's saying is that the chet egel is something that became in a way like imprinted upon the consciousness of the Jewish people and needs to be constantly confronted and constantly corrected. In fact, we know that the, the Kohen Gadol, for instance, does not wear uh, golden clothing when he goes into the Kodesh HaKodeshim on Yom Kippur. And one of the reasons that's given for that is that he should not uh, bring to mind the Egel HaZahav, the golden calf. Another thing that we see is that uh, you're not allowed to... Um, uh, is that... Uh, I mean, that's, that's probably the, the best known. Um, there, there are other customs that some people practice. Uh, some people don't wear gold on Yom Kippur for, for the same reason. Um, there are, there is a, uh, we, as I mentioned on Shabbat, the Parah Aduma, the, uh, uh, the, the ritual that, uh, purifies, uh, somebody from contact with a dead body is also associated with the Cheta Egel, or with the correction of the Cheta Egel, I should say. Um, the, um, uh, there are many korbanot that a lot of times, uh, uh, korbanot that are brought for various forms of atonement, the rabbis will say this is also to atone for the sin of the golden calf. So it works its way into many different, uh, into many different mitzvot, into many different practices that we have, the awareness of the cheta egel, of the golden calf. So the question is, what really happened there? What was the significance of the, uh, of the sin? How could it happen? I think that many of us read the story in a way like bewildered. How could a, a group of people that stood at Mount Sinai, that witnessed miracles in Egypt and stood at Mount Sinai and heard God himself speak to them and tell them not to make any uh, idols and not to worship idols, go ahead shortly afterwards, just days later, and construct a golden idol and start dancing around it. It's a very, very strange thing. And I think that many of us... Now, obviously, it's sometimes easy to judge uh, in retrospect without walking uh, a day in the shoes of the people. So if, if we were to consider what's more understandable, which, which sin can we... Uh, I, I don't want to say identify with more, but which, which sin could we be more forgiving of? The sin of the golden calf or the sin of the spies? 
when the spies came back from uh, from having been in uh, in Eretz Israel and came back and said, "No, it's, we, we can't go and we can't fight. It's too scary. There are giants and they're going to crush us." Which sin of the two is more sympathetic to us? Appears more of a, a sympathetic sin, meaning that we can understand it and we can kind of forgive it and say, "Yeah, we probably would have done the same." I would think, I would think that the chet hamiraglim, the sin of the spies, we can understand. Because they were faced, here's a group of people who've been wandering in the desert for a year. They were, uh, they, they were slaves their entire lives for generations, really. And they've been under the protective uh, shadow of the divine presence and the guidance of Moshe Rabbeinu and living in a kind of miraculous bubble. And all of a sudden you want us to take up arms and go and fight against powerful, well-trained nations where we're risking our lives. It's very scary. Fear I can understand. That kind of fear I can understand. They didn't want to take the leap of putting themselves at risk, actively going into the land of Israel and having to uh, fight off enemies and possibly be killed by those enemies feeling that they didn't really have the training or the preparation necessary and they imagined the most ferocious opponents on the other side, whatever it was, we can understand the fear of uh, going into battle. I'm, at least I can. So therefore we look at the Chetam Raglim and we say, well, that doesn't seem like such a catastrophic sin, but the sin of the Cheta Egel, Cheta Egel, the sin of the golden calf, it seems absurd. This group of people just decided to make a golden calf and start running around and saying, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, what, what are they thinking? It's not a very sympathetic, sympathetic scene. It's not a scene that we say, oh yeah, I could see why I would do that. Nobody would do that. I can't imagine any of us would go construct a golden calf if we found ourselves in a crisis. And when we look at the text, and I'm going to do a screen share here, it's a very helpful uh, tool. One second, I have to fix the, uh, I have to actually fix it so that it's on my screen. One second. Um, and then I'll be able to screen share to you. Where did I put it? Oh, here we go. Now I should be able to screen share it so that you'll be able to see the text. Let me see if it works. Mm, yeah. Okay, so I'm screen sharing Safari, yeah? Which is my, oftentimes my, uh, my resource of choice online. I like it a lot. Um, this is the parasha. It has the English also. We can take the English app. I'm going to leave it there for those of you who maybe prefer to see the English too. Um, I'm just scrolling down to the sin of the golden calf so we can get an idea of what it is, uh, what, what really happened here. Now, let's take a look at what precipitated the sin of the golden calf. It says, Vayara'am ki voshesh Moshe the people saw that Moshe Rabbeinu was taking a long time coming down from the mountain. He was up there a long time. We know he was there 40 days and 40 nights. And of course, the rabbis say that he gave them an amount of time that he was going to be there and they miscalculated and therefore expected him earlier and therefore gave up hope when he didn't show up on the deadline. Um, but it doesn't say that in the text. All it says in the text is, I'm going up to speak to God and I'm going to be back and don't worry. And the people just notice it's been a long time. Not that they had a specific count of days, but either way, even if they had a specific count of days, the idea that they lost count or they miscalculated itself tells us something. But let's come back to it. The people gathered against Aaron or they gathered around Aaron. Make us a God that will walk before us. That make us a God that will walk before us because this man, Moshe, 
who took us out of the land of Egypt, lo yadanu mehayalo, we don't know what happened to him. Now when you read this pasuk, you must think to yourself, I'm missing something. This doesn't make any sense. What is the problem that they're facing? Moshe Rabbeinu has gone missing. We don't know what happened to him. So what's the, what's the solution to that problem? The solution to that problem should be self-evident. It should be simple. Worst case scenario, he's not coming back. Okay, he's not coming back. So what do you do? You appoint a new leader. You choose somebody else to serve in the capacity of Moshe Rabbeinu. In fact, Moshe Rabbeinu left behind him Aaron Vechur. He left behind him two people who would be the interim leaders of the Jewish people while he was absent. So they should take over. What, what is the building of a golden calf or any kind of a golden statue or anything physical and inanimate? How is that going to fill the void that is left by Moshe Rabbeinu being absent? It doesn't seem to make any sense. And Aaron said to them, take out your golden earrings uh, and your, you know, the gold that you have in your ears and uh, so on. Now bring them to me. And then don't tell this to your sons, but it sounds like the boys also had the earrings because it says take the golden rings that are in the ears of your wives and your sons. So uh, don't, let, don't let your sons know about that because they might think that they should go get earrings. So they did it. They went and they gave all of their rings to Aaron. He took it from their hand and so he fashioned it into a mold and he made he made a golden calf and they said this is your God O Israel who brought you out of Egypt Aaron saw and he built the Mizbeach he built an altar in front of it and Aaron called out and said it will be a holiday for Hashem tomorrow now notice he emphasizes it's going to be a holiday for Hashem, not for this golden calf. They got up the next day early, of course, because they're excited to do this. They brought burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people started partying, eating, drinking, dancing, whatever other kind of immorality is implied by that. But what we see here is... The question that, that, that really should bother anybody reading this text uh, from a, uh, you know, with two, two eyes open is, I mean, what kind of a solution, what was the problem? The problem was they don't have a leader. What's the solution? Make a golden statue. It just doesn't follow. And why is Aaron participating in this instead of saying to them, guys, what is a golden statue going to do for you? He doesn't say that. Instead, he facilitates it, basically. He tells them to give, them, give him their gold, which maybe he thought would be a deterrent because they wouldn't want to do it. And he puts it in and it comes out as a golden calf. And then he builds an altar in front of it. And he says, tomorrow we'll have a holiday to Hashem. Maybe he was buying time, trying to delay it, figure they would calm down, they would chill out from this. But what is going on? And, and Aaron, we know later, is criticized. Moshe Rabbeinu says to him, what did the people do to you that you brought upon them such a terrible sin? So Aaron is, and, and, and later on in, in the book of Dvarim, when Moshe Rabbeinu recounts the story, he says Hashem also wanted to punish Aaron and kill Aaron for this. It was such a serious sin. How could he do it? How could he be involved in this if it was such silly? This seems absurd to us. Forget about idolatrous. It seems ridiculous. So what's the, what is really going on here? What do you see from here? What you see from here is something very important uh, and very significant about the Jewish people's relationship with Moshe Rabbeinu. That the Jewish people 
had an unhealthy relationship with Moshe Rabbeinu. The Jewish people, in a sense, kind of deified Moshe Rabbeinu and saw him as the presence of God, almost incarnate. They saw him as the embodiment of the presence of God. And therefore, when he was gone, they felt that the presence of God had departed from them. And I think that that's the only way you can explain it. They're not going to Aaron and saying, make us a golden calf. They said, Moshe's gone. This Moshe who brought us out of Egypt. Now notice they say, Moshe brought them out of Egypt, right? I'll go back to that pasuk again. Because this man, Moshe, who took us out of Egypt, so in other words, he's the one who took us out of Egypt, and we don't know where he is. So they see him as some kind of a supernatural being. And therefore, what do they want? They want to, and that, then if you look, what do they describe the golden calf as? The, the, these, literally, it's these are your gods, O Israel, but this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. The exact thing that they said Moshe Rabbeinu did, now they're saying that the calf did. So the, what is the calf really? It's not actually a substitute for God. It's actually a substitute for what? What does it say? What do they say? They say, what's missing? Not God. They said, We don't know what happened to Moshe, who took us out of Egypt. So we need something to substitute for Moshe, but not as a decision maker. They don't expect, they know that the person making decisions is Aaron, is the one who's telling them what to do. They meant that we need something to embody for us the presence of God, that supernatural force or that divine presence or aura that Moshe Rabbeinu was able to uh, create for them. They needed that back. They wanted to recreate that. And that's why even below when it says, what does Aaron say? He says, okay, this will be a way for you to feel. Why did Aaron agree to it? This will be a way for you to feel that God's presence is still with you, but not to worship it. He never says this is a, an object of worship. The people said, this is your God, O Israel, who took you out of Egypt. But remember that just a second ago, they said Moshe Rabbeinu was the one who took them out of Egypt. So what it means is that this is an embodiment. This is a representation of that same kind of a force, that same kind of a power, that same kind of an aura or divine presence that was embodied by Moshe Rabbeinu was now embodied by this calf. Not that they think that the calf they just made five seconds ago was actually the calf that brought, was actually the God that brought them out of Egypt. They know they just made it five seconds ago. So that can't be it. It means we're trying to channel that same divine power, that same divine presence so that we can feel it and it's tangible to us and it's real to us. Because without Moshe Rabbeinu, they didn't have a feeling of the real, true presence of God in their midst. And that's why when Aaron says, agrees to do it, he wouldn't have agreed to do it if he thought it was actually idolatry that they were going to worship the calf. He agreed to do it because he said, you know what, I'm, cons- I'm basically compromising. I'm basically uh, making a concession to the weakness of the people so they can continue to worship God. Not so that they worship this cow. So, so they can continue to worship God. And therefore it says, Aaron built a Mizbech in front of the calf, but said, it's going to be a holiday for Hashem tomorrow, not a holiday for the calf. And even when it mentions that they brought Korbanot, it never says that they brought Korbanot to the calf. It says that they brought Korbanot, they just brought Korbanot, which could even mean that they brought Korbanot to Hashem. They were using the calf as a way to stabilize and concretize their sense of God's presence in their midst. And what we see from this is, number one, that they needed some concrete symbol, and number two, that they were attaching uh, excessive significance to the persona of Moshe Rabbeinu. And the, um, 
By the way, when it says Kizem Moshe Ha'ish, that I feel that that's also a bit of a hint back to a text earlier, which is when it talks about in in uh, Egypt. I can actually roll back to there when they're leaving Egypt or before that in Parshat Bo. It says Vegama Ish Moshe Gadol Meod that Moshe Rabbeinu had become very great in the eyes of the Egyptians. And what does it mean that Moshe Rabbeinu had become very great in the eyes of the Egyptians? What is the significance of that? It means that they, again, they thought of him as a magic man. They thought of him as some kind of a divinity almost. They thought of him as having uh, powers of his own. And that was what impressed them and that was what scared them. And that's why they were willing to lend whatever the Jewish people wanted them to lend. Uh, and let's see, where is that pasuk? Um, here it is. Hashem made the Jewish people find favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. He was very greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt among Paro's men and, and, among the, uh, and among the people. In other words, what does that show you? It shows you that that same word, Ha'ish Moshe, okay? The man Moshe means that there was a significance to his persona that was very Egyptian-style thing, deifying or, uh, you know, putting a human being on a pedestal uh, as greater than human. And, uh, and this was the sin, really, that, uh, that of the Egel Azav. The sin of the Egel Azav wasn't, in, in the way that I'm reading it, and the way that I would argue uh, is, is the correct reading, is that it wasn't a sin of idolatry in the sense that they worshipped the golden calf. It was, a, it, was an, it was that they tried to reassure themselves of God's presence using a concrete symbol. Now, what that revealed was the unhealthy attachment they had to Moshe Rabbeinu because they were using him psychologically for that the whole time. But Moshe Rabbeinu was different than the golden calf. And that's why the rabbis make some very suggestive comments here. They say that the people knew uh, the number of days that Moshe Rabbeinu was going to be on the mountain, but they miscalculated. A miscalculation means that they had a... The miscalculation never happens truly by accident, especially when it's a collective. It means that there was, an, there was a desire. There was a fantasy that he wasn't going to come back. I mean, when it says that they saw, or they thought he was dead, and, and there's a Midrash that says that they saw his coffin floating away, it means that they, there was a part of them that said, you know what, maybe we'd be better off without Moshe Rabbeinu. Maybe we'd be better off with something like the Egel Azahav that's not going to make any demands of us. It's not going to have any requirements of us. It's not going to force us to follow a mitzvot. It's just going to make us feel good about ourselves. It's just going to make us feel that God is with us. And that's all that we really want. So that is what the sin of idolatry is here. Succumbing to the low-level impulse to have a physical symbol of God's presence to reassure us. Uh, whether that be a great person like Moshe Rabbeinu, or in this case, a golden idol. And that's why Aaron says, Chag Lashem Acharon. He didn't see any problem with saying there's going to be a holiday for Hashem. We're just using this golden calf as a way to give us a feeling, to stabilize our sense that Hashem is with us. That's, that's okay. I mean, he didn't think that was okay, but he didn't think that it was going to be uh, as d- disastrous of a problem as it turned out to be, he figured he was just compromising. He was meeting them halfway. Uh, and, and of course, that was considered a grave error. But he wanted to do it himself because he didn't want them to do it because he thought that if they did it, perhaps, and it's actually there's some, some of the rabbis say that the reason why Aaron did it himself was because he felt, if I do it, I'll take the blame upon myself. But if they do it, the blame will be upon them. 
And I think there's a deeper significance to that. It's not just a matter of blame, who we're going to point the finger at, our own or the other people. It's a question of when you're involved with something directly, um, it's, it has a bigger effect on you. And Aaron said, if I do it directly, I know that this is not going to have an effect on me. I'm not going to be seduced into any kind of idolatrous ideas of God's presence. But if they do it, then it might affect them more deeply and be more problematic. So I'll take it on myself. And um, it would be like if there was some disturbing thing that needed to be viewed. And you know that it will traumatize other people, but you won't be traumatized. So you look uh, and, and you take it in on their behalf. So Aaron, therefore, is trying to intervene and to maybe dissuade, but also to minimize the extent to which this is idolatrous, which might explain why in Pasuk number four there, the people said, this is your God who took you out of Egypt, by which they mean this is like channeling Moshe Rabbeinu, basically. And Aaron said, holiday for Hashem tomorrow, because he wants to say that, that we're not focusing on the calf, but we're focusing on God, and we're using this as an instrument to focus on God, which was one of the ideas of idolatry that was very prevalent. And the Rambam speaks about it when he talks about the history of idolatry, that idolatry was originally just a way that the leaders of the time, um, the Dor Enosh, the generation of Enosh, when they introduced idolatry, the idea of idolatry in the beginning was not to replace God, but was to help people relate to God and say, you know, God is very abstract, very transcendent, invisible, untouchable. We can't represent him in any way. So if we just had some object we could focus on that would help us appreciate the greatness of God and his presence, then it would be easier to relate to God. And so they started out with the stars and the moon and the sun and said, maybe we should uh, bow down to them because by honoring the creation of God, we recognize God. And then slowly, slowly, what evolved from that was more and more primitive ways of representing God to the point that it just ended up being statues or stars at the best that they worshipped, you know, natural entities, but mostly stars, uh, mostly uh, statues and and figurines, it it descended into that eventually. But the original concept, the Rambam explains in the generation of Enosh, which was much earlier, um, was to, uh, going back thousands of years, going back till, uh, you know, even before the flood, the original genesis of idolatry was a method by the Chachamim. The Rambam even says, we can look, I have on the screen share the Rambam here. I was going to show you something else from the Rambam. But let me just show you first uh, what he says in the Halachot of, uh, of idolatry. Um, he says, how do we go to it? Um, he says, he says that it was the Chachamei Ador, it was the wise people of, the, of that generation that made a huge mistake. It says that, uh, that in the days of Enosh, the people made a great mistake and, and the uh, advice of the people, meaning the council of the people became ruined and, uh, and Enosh, Enosh himself was one of the people who made the mistake, and this was their mistake. They said, since God created the universe, we should honor his universe, and that way we, uh, we honor God. <clears throat> but the idea was that it was originally done, and he talks about how it got further and further from the original concept. The idea is that, um, that this was a mistake made by the wise people of the generation, who wanted to guide everybody towards understanding of God and they felt put off by it being so abstract. They tried to make it accessible. But what do you see 
from the case of Dor Enosh. You see that it's a mistake to try to make God more accessible when that means compromising the honor of God. And in any case, what happens when Moshe Rabbeinu comes back, of course, is he breaks the luchot, he breaks the tablets. Now, a simple way of reading the breaking of the tablets is that the people have broken the covenant and the promise that they... Uh... Oh, and by the way, another proof that it's not direct idolatry what they did with the golden calf is that what Hashem says to, uh, uh, to Moshe Rabbeinu is, uh, that they made for themselves a, uh, uh, an egel masecha, they made for themselves a golden calf. But, but then he does say, that they bowed to it and they offered sacrifices to it. So I think that the sacrifices were ambiguous. It seems like there were different groups. In other words, it wasn't everybody. There were different levels. There were some people who just thought it was a way to help meditate on God. And there were some people who actually went so far as to worship him. And that, those were the people that Moshe Rabbeinu eventually kills when he comes back. The people who actually worshipped the idolatry. But the people who just were trying to relate to God using this Egel Azad, they weren't punished as much. And this, I think Rabbi Yehuda Levi also speaks about this in the Kuzari. The Ramban, I think, also talks about it in more detail that there, is, uh, there were different groups here and different levels of, uh, of sin here. But he brings the Luchot, and everybody interprets the breaking of the Luchot for, uh, as a, uh, as, because of the breaking of the covenant. But if you look at how the Luchot are described, that these, the tablets were the, the, the creation of God. And the writing was God's writing written on the tablets. In other words, that these tablets also had, were a physical entity that in some way had a divine quality, a divine character to them, and could easily become objects of idolatry as well. And I think that might be the reason that Moshe Rabbeinu broke the tablets, not just because the people had broken the covenant and therefore he shatters the tablets that were the agreement between the Jewish people and Hashem. That could be part of it, and also obviously the shock value. But, there's, but I think one element is that these luchot are associated with God and they're a physical thing associated with God and therefore have to be destroyed because the people will then attach their unhealthy, uh, idolatrous feelings to these tablets. And unfortunately, we have even today, and that's why I mentioned earlier, who are you more sympathetic to? Are you more sympathetic to a person, to somebody who would have gone along with the sin of the Meraglim, the sin of the spies, or somebody who went along with the sin of the golden calf? And we said, really, somebody who went along with the sin of the golden calf seems like a fool and a buffoon to do it. Somebody who went along with the sin of the... Uh, uh, of the Meraglim seems rational and, and reasonable because they, um, they were just afraid. But here you see that out of the fear that they had of God's distance, they did something that actually many people do, which is they tried to find a quick fix to reestablish their feeling that God was close to them. And they descended to idolatry. And, you know, you can find a person who will, it could be all kinds of things. They could hang all kinds of sgulots and hang things on the wall and hang things over their bed and put things under their pillow and wear certain things. Or uh, there's all kinds of different magical ways that people try to give themselves a good feeling uh, about God's closeness. And this, these are very similar to, to the Egel Azahaf. They're not that different from the golden calf. Not the golden calf worshipped as an idol, but the golden calf as something that helps us feel that we have a physical and a concrete connection to God um, and, and that we can experience his presence in a sensory way. That 
we do seek and that we do try. And whether it's done, it may be in our culture, it's done more through readings of, of certain texts. So a person says, oh, read this a hundred times or read this, you know, read this Tehillim or even without thinking about what they mean, just read them or, or a mezuzah sometimes, oh, check your mezuzot, bad thing happened, check your mezuzah, your mezuzah is somehow your, your lifeline to God or maybe it's your tefillin. All kinds of objects that we have that are sacred objects, a person will see them as somehow embodying something divine and will attach to them significance beyond their, uh, the, the significance that they're supposed to have. And so obviously, um, this was an error of, of not, not an error that's so different. And that's why it says that in every generation and every bad thing that happens to Jewish people is somewhat of an expiation, somewhat of an atonement for the golden calf because we're still subject to that same religious mentality that we look for uh, physical, concrete expressions of God's presence to try to connect to so that we can lower God to our level to make ourselves feel better. Not because God is really on that level, but it gives us the illusion that he is. And, um, and of course, Aharon gets in trouble with Moshe and, uh, for having done this. But you notice that after killing the 3,000 people who actually worship the golden calf, which is a small number uh, relative to the population of the Jewish people at the time, it was only a small group that actually committed idolatry, technically. Everybody else was using it as a kind of a medium between them and God or a way to feel assured of the presence of God, but not that they were actually worshiping it. Um, we see that when Moshe Rabbeinu then has a, uh, a dialogue, uh, well, he's, he seeks from Hashem uh, some kind of forgiveness, or, and, and Hashem is not willing to give it at first, and that's the whole discussion later on in the parashah. But we see that there's something that Moshe Rabbeinu does here that seems unrelated, which is here on, on, on Pasuk number Zayin, Pasuk 7, uh, in chapter 33. Moshe would take his tent, and he put it outside the camp, far away from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. Now notice that term later becomes the term for the Beit HaMikdash, for the Mishkan, Oil Moed, tent of meeting. So you see here a different meaning of Oil Moed. Anybody who sought God would have to come to this tent outside the camp. So what does Moshe Rabbeinu do? Basically he takes himself outside the camp. Now why would he be, what would the motive be to do that? The motive would be, seemingly, that his presence had become a form of idolatry in the eyes of the people, and therefore he wanted to remove it from them. And he said, when you're ready to seek God, you have to leave the camp and come to me and I'll teach you about Hashem. But I'm not going to be here as a constant presence because my presence gave you a false sense of security. My presence gave you a feeling that I was somehow embodying the divine, and I don't want that. And then it says, when Moshe Rabbeinu would go out, everyone would stand up, and they would watch Moshe until he got to his tent. And when he would, come, when he would get to his tent, then, uh, then uh, uh, when he would get to this tent that was called the tent of meeting where he would stay, so uh, it, the, the cloud that represented God's presence would come down and the people would bow, bow and, uh, in, to honor it. And, uh, and, and then it says, Hashem would speak to Moshe panim el panim face, face to face directly and so on. But the idea is that Moshe Rabbeinu, um, and then he would return to the camp at the end. But Yoshua would, would always stay in the, uh, in, in the tent. The idea is, though, by removing the tent from the camp, putting a tent, put, putting a tent outside the camp, he's showing a distance from the, from the people. He's showing a, a, that if you want to be able to relate to God, God doesn't come down to you. And since you're seeing me, Moshe Rabbeinu, as the one who embodies that, you have to come to Hashem. You have to be mivakesh Hashem. You have to become, uh, you have to seek out 
and strive to know God and to know the Torah and to lift yourself up towards Hashem. Hashem doesn't come down to you. And he realized that by being amidst the camp, he gave the people too easy of a fix. They felt protected. They felt safe. They felt um, reassured as long as Moshe Rabbeinu was there. So Moshe Rabbeinu said, I'm going to leave. And if you really want to come close to God, you're going to have to leave uh, the comfort of the camp and come to me and show. Like the way that Yitro left everything behind to come to join the Jewish people to learn about Hashem and to connect with the, with the Torah. Um, that, that's the way you're going to have to do things. Uh, but it shows you that Moshe Rabbeinu recognized this psychological problem uh, that the people had. Now, this is recounted to us after Moshe Rabbeinu has already um, made the, destroyed the golden calf and killed those who were the direct perpetrators and has already asked Hashem to forgive the Jewish people. And of course, Hashem says that uh, things are never going to be the same. Yes, Hashem does not, is not going to destroy the Jewish people and he's not going to uh, change the plan. They're still going to go into Eretz Israel, But things are never going to be the same. It's going to be more indirect. It's going to be less of a, uh, uh, a spectacular divine intervention. People are not going to be worthy of that anymore. Things have changed. It's like when there's any kind of a violation of trust in a relationship. Things don't just go back to being normal because somebody apologizes. It's a lot more work. And that's the answer that Hashem gives to Moshe. And then it talks about Moshe removing his tent from the camp. What does that show you? Seemingly, I would say what that shows you is that Moshe thought that the next step in correcting the sin would be to uh, change his location in the uh, he wasn't doing it because he was angry with the people he wasn't doing it to reject the people you see that he's defending the people to God and he's trying to, uh, to to get forgiveness for them but by moving out of the tent and requiring everyone to come to him what he's saying is this is the next step in re-educating them to get over this um, this flaw that led to the sin of the golden calf and, uh, and then Moshe Rabbeinu has the very famous dialogue with Hashem that eventually leads to the revelation, uh, the second revelation on Mount Sinai, this time not to the entire Jewish people, to Moshe Rabbeinu, and of the Yud Gimel Midot HaChamim, the uh, 13 attributes of mercy that, um, that you know, become a part of our tefillot and all of that. But Moshe Rabbeinu really is trying to broker a deal with Hashem that he should forgive the Jewish people. And somebody was asking me, and it's a good question, and it's a question that I've answered in different contexts before, but I think it's worth mentioning. What really happened here? Is it that Hashem was planning to destroy the Jewish people and Moshe talked him out of it? That's what it sounds like. If you look at the text, Hashem says to Moshe, Hanichali, let me go and I will destroy them. What does it mean, let me go? So the implication is, as the rabbis point out, that that means that actually they had the, um, that Moshe Rabbeinu had the upper hand. In other words, Hashem is saying to Moshe Rabbeinu, let me go and I will destroy them. And Moshe Rabbeinu won't let him go. Moshe Rabbeinu says, no. He says, no, because if you do this, then it's going to be a chilul Hashem. The nations of the world will think that you took the Jewish people out of Egypt in order to slaughter them. They will get the wrong idea and they, it will completely defeat the purpose of sanctifying God's name that was the original aim of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and bringing the Jews to Eretz Israel. It's going to be backfiring. Everyone's going to say this God is, is nothing. This God is, uh, it had evil intent towards the Jewish people. Whatever it is, it's not going to work. It's going to be a chilul Hashem, a desecration of God's name, if the, Jewish pe- if the Jewish people die from the sin of the golden calf. That's, the, uh, that, that's what Moshe Rabbeinu says. So the question is, why didn't Hashem know that idea? Hashem didn't know that it was going to be a chilul Hashem. He didn't know that, uh, 
that if he if he kills all the Jewish people on the desert for for the sin of the golden calf, that the nations of the world are going to see that and they're going to get the wrong impression of what Hashem is really about because they're not going to understand the internal politics and what caused it to happen. So, what's the, what's the answer? I, I wrote about this in a um, in an article on Tefillah that I published a couple months ago uh, online. Uh, and uh, but I'm I'm just going to share a little bit about what I sa- a little bit of what I said there because I think it's really important for understanding these um, these uh, passages that talk about tefillah being answered or Hashem changing His mind can really be misleading and be uh, be confusing because it's never Hashem that changes His mind. It's always people that change. Hashem is not changing, but people change. And if we change, we get a different response from Hashem. So the example that the Rambam gives, a beautiful example, is that you could put fire on paper and it will burn. You could put fire on wax and it will melt. You could put fire on water and the water will evaporate. But it's the same fire, but the substance it's applied to reacts and responds differently. And the same is true. Hashem is the same, but how he responds depends on us. So if Moshe Rabbeinu just said forgive them and didn't have any explanation for why or any context for why and Hashem would forgive the Jewish people, what would the result be? The people would just say it wasn't such a big deal what we did because Hashem forgave us and He let us go. Obviously it didn't mean much that we had this golden calf. So therefore, but when Moshe Rabbeinu on his own initiative with his own free will says, no, the reason why you should forgive the Jewish people is not because what they did wasn't a big deal and not because what they did wasn't an error and doesn't deserve terrible punishment. The reason why is because it's going to cause a chilu Hashem. That changes everything. Why does it change everything? Why all of a sudden does Hashem relent from his plan to punish the Jewish people? Not because Hashem changed his mind, but because Moshe Rabbeinu changed his mind and said, the reason why Hashem should forgive is because to prevent Chilul Hashem. Why is that significant? Because Moshe Rabbeinu is the teacher of the Jewish people. He's going to convey to the Jewish people, you know why Hashem forgave you? Not because what you did is small, not because what you did was insignificant, but because he wanted to prevent Chilul Hashem from happening in the world. Since Moshe Rabbeinu is going to shape the way that the Jewish people see the outcome here, the outcome can therefore be different from what it would have been if Moshe Rabbeinu had not had that insight. The example that I give is to a person who is uh, begging for mercy from a human judge. Just begging for mercy from a human judge on its own, the judge is unlikely to forgive you because he's unlikely to, to let you go because he doesn't want you to get the impression that what you did wasn't significant. You did a terrible crime. He's not just going to let you go because you're crying and begging. However, if you present a plan and say, listen, I know what I did was wrong. I know what I did was inappropriate. I know that I erred. I recognize it, but I think going to jail or whatever the punishment is will cause me to, de- will cause me to decline even further. And if I don't have such a severe punishment, there will be a positive outcome. Um, and the positive outcome is X, Y, and Z. So now when the judge lets the convict or you know, get, have a more lenient sentence, it doesn't send the wrong message. It doesn't tell the convict that what he did was okay. It doesn't tell him that the judge isn't very strict. It doesn't tell him that the law tolerates what he, you know, the crime that was committed. What it tells the convict is that you're, since you realize you're getting a second chance for a specific reason that you understood and that you presented, therefore you're not going to misconstrue this special dispensation as an acceptance of what you did wrong. No, we know that what you did was wrong. But since you realize that we're, gonna get, we're only giving you the second chance because of the explanation, because of, a, because of another reason, 
So since you understand that, you won't, mis- you won't misconstrue the, uh, uh, the favor that's being done for you and think that somehow it is a, um, it's an endorsement of what you did. Or the same would be true with a child that gets in trouble with the parents. And if the parents just let him go, he's not going to realize that what he did was wrong. But if the child can make an argument to the parents, look, I know what I did was wrong, I know it was terrible, but there's this consideration and there's that consideration and this punishment will be worse for me than I, than I really deserve. And then when the parents give him a second chance, it isn't taken in the wrong way. It isn't taken as an acceptance of what was done wrong. So that's really what happens here. Moshe Rabbeinu changes his view. And the same is true with the Yud When Hashem reveals to Moshe Rabbeinu the 13 attributes of mercy, the reason is that he should be able with that understanding to lead the people and to guide the people and to shape their understanding and their comprehension of what is going on and what is happening to them. And, uh, and that's why we always repeat it when we ask Hashem for forgiveness in all of our tefillot and especially on Yom Kippur because what we're saying to Hashem is we're asking for forgiveness not because we really deserve it and not because what we did wasn't wrong and not because we didn't make a lot of mistakes and sometimes really heinous uh, sins that we might have committed. But what we're saying to Hashem is we recognize that and we see the forgiveness that you grant us as an expression of compassion and mercy that you have on your creatures, that you give them time to develop and you don't hold them to a line of strict justice. If we just were forgiven without reciting the Yodgimum Midoto Achamim, that would mean we deserve to be forgiven. That would mean that what we did wasn't wrong and wasn't inappropriate and wasn't worthy of condemnation. That would be incorrect. So therefore we say the Yodgimum Midot in order to express that we recognize and we accept that we deserve a worse fate. But because the ways of Hashem are nurturing and compassionate, therefore He allows us more time, second, third, fourth, fifth, and tenth chances to improve ourselves. And that's the reason for Moshe Rabbeinu's tefillah here, and his, the reason why uh, we see a connection between Moshe Rabbeinu's tefillah and seeking of knowledge of Hashem, that, that Moshe Rabbeinu says, I want to see your face, which means I want to understand you at the highest possible level, which is not really accessible to a human being, or let me know your ways. Hashem says, I'm going to let you know my ways. And that's what is called seeing God's back. Not that Hashem has a front or a back or any other bodily attribute. What it means by seeing my face means understanding Hashem as He truly is. That's beyond our ability. Seeing His back means seeing what comes from Hashem. Seeing what is caused by Hashem. Like uh, the, the Rambam gives the analogy, some, you can tell who a person is from looking at the back of their body when they're walking away, even without seeing the front. Meaning you don't have... You're able to use those clues and circumstantial clues to identify the person. So, so too, let me see your ways. Let me see the way that you run the universe and understand it better. And that's what Hashem reveals to Moshe. That, was, that Moshe Rabbeinu could grasp. He couldn't grasp who Hashem was uh, in and of himself. That's beyond human ability to comprehend. But to grasp how Hashem runs the world, that Moshe Rabbeinu was able to do. And that's why it says seeing his back. Seeing his back means seeing what Hashem causes in the world and how he governs the world. And with that understanding, then Moshe Rabbeinu can lead and govern and guide the Jewish people more effectively because he'll be guiding them based on his understanding of Hashem's ways. And the people will comprehend and grasp that they are being guided based on Hashem's ways. And that the reason why they might be forgiven of this sin is not because the sin was a light one, but it's because the, um, it's because the, uh, of Hashem's compassion and Hashem's 
kindness that he allows his creatures multiple opportunities to correct their paths and to improve themselves even when they have erred. And th- this is the, uh, th- this is why these, these parashiyot or this story plays such a big role in our tefillah because it's something that is critical for us to recognize that we should be thankful for the many opportunities we have to grow, for the many chances that we have, the nine lives that we have, so to speak, that we're able to bounce back so many times from, um, from errors that we make because Hashem has given us that, uh, that opportunity to continue trying and even to sometimes stumble, but to eventually get up and to, uh, and to reach our goals. So Bezrat Hashem, we'll be able to uh, continue our learning next week. I think this gives us a good idea of why the golden calf was significant, what the mistake was. Oh, actually, I did want to show you one last thing, which was what, what the Rambam says uh, about Shabbat and idolatry. He says in, towards the end of the Halachot of Shabbat, the Rambam says, HaShabbat va'avodat kochavim that the observance of Shabbat and idolatry are both combined, are both com, uh, compared to one another. And he says that a person who desecrates the Shabbat, that it's considered like a type of idolatry, a person who doesn't respect Shabbat. That a person who, on the other hand, observes Shabbat is, gets a tremendous reward. So there is, a, there is a, uh, a contrast between idolatry on one hand and the observance of Shabbat on the other hand. And what is the reason? And we see even in our parasha, right before the story of the golden calf, is the mitzvah of Shabbat. Right before the story of the golden calf in parashat Kitisa is the mitzvah of Shabbat. What's the reason? Because Shabbat means that the entire universe is created by Hashem. And Hashem is behind it, but He's not in it. Okay, Hashem is what is beyond the universe. He created everything in the universe. Whereas Avodah Zorah is saying that somehow Hashem could be in the universe. There's something divine that could be in the world. And that the presence of God could be concrete or embodied in something. That's idolatry, trying to embody God in something physical. Whereas Shabbat says, no, the physical world is the handiwork of God. So it's all about how we relate to our world. Do we relate to our world giving it some divine quality? No, there's nothing in the world that has a divine quality in and of itself. But it is the handiwork of God and therefore it points to and directs our attention to Hashem, the Creator. That's the healthy way to look at the world. Not to ignore the physical world and how beautiful it is and how majestic it is, but not to deify it either. To recognize that it helps highlight the Creator. It helps point our attention, point our minds to the Creator. And this is what the Mishkan comes to do. The Mishkan was created not like the golden calf to embody God's presence literally, or like the people thought that Moshe Rabbeinu embodied God's, God's presence literally. But it was a physical place that was very beautiful and very, uh, you know, and very inspiring, but that, uh, that took us away from the idea of idolatry and pointed our minds towards a proper understanding of Hashem. And it's a constant balance that we have to strike in Judaism between living in the physical world and appreciating the physical world and its beauty on one hand, but not either going to the extreme of deifying it and not on the other hand, you know, obviously going on to the extreme of ignoring it. We, we want to be in the middle. We want to see it and appreciate it, but appreciate it as God's handiwork that helps us to understand Him and come closer to Him. So Bezrat Hashem, we will continue here uh, next week with uh, Parashat Vayakel. Wish everybody a good week. 
Shavua Tov. Thank you for joining me.